God, we do thank you today for Jesus. Thank you for the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. Thank you for the promise, God, that, that Jesus is coming back again to take us unto himself. And I pray, God, that we can continue now just to celebrate you, to celebrate through the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that your word would speak to our heart in a powerful way today and that, that none of us would go away from here today at the same place where we were when we came in. God, I pray that you would lift us up as we lift you up. Draw us close to you. And may the name of Jesus be glorified in us today in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our will, and then as we go forth to serve you in our actions. In Jesus' name now we continue to worship. Amen. Feel free to take a seat and open your Bible with me to the little letter way over in the back of the New Testament to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. We're going to begin a journey for the next few months and make a big shift from taking volumes of material like we did through the book of Ezra. And we're going to be looking verse by verse through the book of 2 Peter. And we'll be moving at a pace that will be awesome and that will allow God to truly speak to us in the day in which we live. Since the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we've been living in the last days. I don't know how much you think about current events that are going on in our world today, but we are definitely living in the last days from a theological perspective, from a historical biblical perspective. From the time Jesus ascended back into heaven after the resurrection, that was the beginning of the last days, and that's where we're living today. For most of my life, I'm so grateful that, that, that God has called me and God has blessed me to be involved in, in ministry, uh, living real life with real people in the context of ministry has been the story of most of my life. And some of the most fulfilling and encouraging and productive years of my ministry have been working in the area of recovery. People who have understood the addiction process and have been on a journey to overcome addiction and that has been a very fulfilling part. I preach many funerals for men who have followed the road of recovery and died somewhat early and the impact on their lives has continued to be a blessing to me since that time when they gave their life to Jesus and followed Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior and made all of their life about Jesus. For example, Ed Williams is one of those guys. Ed was a guy who was living on the streets. He came from a very successful family background in Jacksonville, Florida. He came to Myrtle Beach and went down the road of drugs and to the extent that he was totally homeless, totally without a place to live, ended up at Street Reach. And through the ministry of a church that I was pastoring at the time, Ed came to know Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. I remember when Ed was standing in the baptism waters, and he had the privilege of sharing his testimony, sharing his story in the waters of baptism. And Ed was asked, why do you want to be baptized, Ed? Why are you following Christ in baptism? And he said, 
This is to seal the deal with Jesus. And he spent the rest of his life following Jesus. And I can't count the number of lives that he impacted after giving his life to Jesus. Another one of my friends, Charlie McBride, went down a similar road, although Charlie uh, went a different journey in his recovery. But I remember when, when Charlie gave his life to Christ and God radically changed his life. Charlie was a guy who could get along with anybody from whatever background their life came uh, from. And Charlie was a, a very winsome kind of personality. And when he gave his life to Christ, I'm telling you, I can't count the number of lives that were transformed and changed through the witness of the power of the gospel in Charlie's life. And I'm so grateful today that I had the opportunity to be with him when he passed from this life into eternity. I was holding him in my arms when he died. And he died standing up with his arms raised, giving glory and praise to God at his very dying moment. But Charlie impacted so many lives after the transformational power of the Lord Jesus Christ changed his life and allowed him from the addictive background that he had experienced, turn his life over to Christ and be transformed by the power of the gospel. A major characteristic in the addiction community that's almost universal is relapse. Almost everybody who enters into the road to recovery, and by the way, you are either on the road to recovery, you're either in recovery or you're in denial. <laughs> Every single one of us battle with sin. And sin is an addiction that enslaves us. And today we're going to be talking about how to overcome that. But relapse is a part of the recovery uh, process. Relapse appears to look like failure. It reveals weakness in our fleshly nature. The temptations of the flesh drive us to accept our need for help. We can't enter the road to recovery until we realize we need help. And when we ask for help, then we can turn to Jesus, who is the ultimate source of our help. And Jesus then draws us into a loving community, like Palmetto Shores Church, a, a loving community of believers and then in humility and in authentic community, sanctification, that change process, begins in our life and continues in our life. As Morgan said earlier, today we celebrate our 15th anniversary as part of the Bride of Christ. And we look forward to coming back today at 5 o'clock and sharing stories and sharing in worship to the God who brought us into existence and made us a part of his family. And I trust that you'll be here to be part of that activity today, beginning at 5 o'clock. We look forward to hearing what God is continuing to do. We know what he's done in the past, and we celebrate what he's done in the past. And we look forward to what he's doing today and what he's going to do with us in the future. But when we boil everything down, one thing stands out that is truly worth celebrating. And that is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We serve a victorious, risen Savior. We celebrate God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triunity. 
And we spent this past month recognizing the fact that, that Jesus is the King of Peace. And when Peter wrote this letter, this little letter that we know as Second Peter to the churches, the world was anything but at peace, especially in the Christian community. But in Peter's heart, even though he knew when he wrote this letter, he was just months away from martyrdom, months away from death, in his heart, he had great peace. At this point in history, Nero was a ruthless Roman leader. He had killed his own mother and most of his chief advisors in order to acquire their fortunes. His, he gratified the flesh in every single way possible. And in 64 AD, he burned Rome so he could build himself a new palace in Rome. And then he blamed the fire on Christians. And so there was a universal throughout the Roman world, throughout the known world of the day, there was a universal persecution of Christians in reaction to the accusation that Nero made. Massive persecution among Christians, among believers. And Second Peter was written to encourage believers that in the process of being persecuted to remain faithful. There were false teachers in the day. And Peter was writing, Second Peter, to encourage believers to stick to the truth, to hold to the truth, to be firm in standing on the gospel rather than being lured away by false teachers. Again, Peter knew he was about to die. And so this letter is an encouragement, kind of like when, I don't know if you've ever been with anybody when they were coming close to the end of their life, coming close to death, but when they speak words in that regard toward the end of their life, you perk up and you listen to what they say. You want to hear what they say. You want to follow what they ask you to carry out. Our world today is not much different. Yes, technically, there's not that kind of persecution going on in our world. But today, there are many false teachers challenging biblical truth. Christianity is under siege today, just like it was in the first century. And we are living in the last days. So over the next few months... Our goal is for us to find hope through God's Word in these days of tribulation that we live, in these days of persecution toward the gospel that, that we live. Simon Peter is a classic model for serving Jesus after massive failure. When we have failed, how can we be like Peter? How can we overcome even in the midst of massive failure that goes on in our life? Well, we're encouraged in this little letter to follow the example of Simon Peter in 2 Peter. And this morning, we're just going to look at the salutation. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Follow along with me as I read aloud. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you today for the truth of your word. And may your word truly change our lives as we let it sink into our hearts. Let it be a change agent in our actions today. In Jesus' name now we pray. Amen. So this salutation underscores three attributes necessary for effectively serving Jesus in these last days in which we live. Look with me, first of all, at the identity of a servant of Jesus Christ. And as I look at the characteristics of the identity of a servant of Jesus Christ, try to put yourself in the place of Simon Peter and see where you stand in your identity as a servant of Jesus Christ. He starts out in verse 1 and says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus. Now, Peter, as you may know, was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, handpicked by Jesus to follow him. Peter was a fisherman. Jesus looked at Peter one day as he was casting his fishing nets. And he said, Peter, put down your fishing nets and come and follow me. And the Bible says immediately, Peter put down his nets and began to follow Jesus. And so for three years, he followed Jesus faithfully almost every single day. The word apostle means one sent on a mission. And that's where Peter stood in his identity in Jesus Christ. He was identified as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a leader of one of these 12 original disciples of Jesus who was chosen, called, and given authority and responsibility to experience Jesus and tell the world about Jesus. So Jesus gave Peter this special name. His name was Simon. And Jesus gave him the name Cephas, which we know as Peter in John chapter 1, verse 42. Jesus gave Peter this name, identifying not who he was at that particular time, but who he was going to become. I believe God is working in this church today, even maybe right now in your hand, in your heart. Maybe He's identifying you for who you can become rather than who you are today. That's exactly what Peter did, what Jesus did in the life of Peter. We follow the life of Peter, and we found even in those three years that he walked with Jesus, he was impulsive, he was arrogant. <laughs> Would you believe he actually argued with Jesus? Several times he argued with Jesus. He was temperamental. He did not understand Scripture in its full context. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the fact that he slept when Jesus had asked him to watch and pray. And rather than watch and pray, he snoozed, he slept through that agonizing time in Jesus' life. 
and then ultimately in the courtyard, while Jesus was being put on trial, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. I would say that's a pretty good picture of someone who fails under the pressure of that little servant girl. He was a coward. He failed. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, if you read that entire last chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, you find that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the encounter that Peter had with Jesus at the resurrection, Peter looked at his other disciple friends and he said, I'm going back to fishing. I'm going back to my old way of life. He relapsed. Here was a man who had seen every miracle that Jesus had performed. He had heard every word that Jesus had taught. Then he had denied Jesus. Then he saw Jesus die on the cross. Then he interacted with the resurrected Jesus. Then he relapsed and said, I'm going back to fishing. But I'm so thankful to God that that's not the end of the story. So what qualifies someone who miserably fails Jesus? And by the way, I can't point an accusing finger at Peter without having four fingers coming back at myself. I, I failed Jesus as well. Even knowing what Jesus has done for me. So I'm just as guilty as Simon Peter was. So after failure, what qualifies someone to be restored and then spend the rest of their life, even at the point of death, as it was with Peter, in serving Jesus? Well, here's what we need to remember. Failure humbled Peter. Failure put Peter in a position to be able to understand the value of God's mercy. Failure was good for Peter because out of his failure, even after going back to fishing, going back to his old way of life, Jesus restored Simon Peter. I wonder what ways you can identify if you let the Holy Spirit speak to you today. In what ways have you failed Jesus? In what ways have you failed to stand up for him when you had the opportunity to speak a word for him? In what ways have you walked away from Jesus rather than walking to Jesus and failed him? I, mean, I don't know about you, but there are instances in this past week that are rolling through my mind where I failed Jesus. But my prayer is that, like me, you will not allow that to hinder you from coming back to Jesus and being restored. Early, I mentioned that when Peter failed miserably, he was restored by Jesus. I think about my friends 
Ed and Charlie and hundreds of others who on the road to recovery have been humbled by a failure, even after coming to Jesus, a relapse kind of failure, and then realize that in that failure, they were humbled to the point of being restored by Jesus. And after being restored by Jesus, then like Simon Peter, becoming slaves servants to Jesus Christ. See, in John chapter 21, Peter and the disciples had gone back fishing. Jesus called from the seashore. And what did Peter do? He put his outer garment on and he jumped into the water and he ran to where Jesus was. He smelled fish frying and after that breakfast fish fry with the resurrected Jesus, then Simon Peter truly was never the same after that. Again, he had some relapse moments. Even after that, he had some relapse moments. But he knew what it was like, and he knew how to come back to Jesus and be restored and be installed back into faithful service for Jesus. So now 30 years later, he identifies himself in this most humble way in the little letter that we know is 2 Peter. A servant and an apostle of Jesus. What a beautiful title. A servant and one who fulfills the calling and the mission that God gives through the power of being restored in the name of Jesus. Servant literally means to be owned by someone for a lifetime. And Peter was subject to the will and totally at the service of Jesus. That's what a slave is. That's what a servant is. Today, you are a slave to something or someone. No exceptions. In the book of Romans chapter 6 the Bible explains that those who live the sinner's life are slaves to sin and the father of sin. And those who are obedient to God are slaves to obedience resulting in God's righteousness and eternal life. So you have to choose who you're going to be a slave to, who you're going to be a servant to. Are you going to be a servant to this world or someone or somebody or something in this world? Or are you going to be a servant a slave to Jesus. What does the identity of a servant of Jesus in the last days look like? Well, just flip back. If you have your Bible, I want you to flip back just one page. In Peter's first letter, which was a couple of years before he wrote 2 Peter, he wrote 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Here's what it looks like. See if you can put yourself in this role, identity, as a follower of Jesus Christ. He said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Does that sound like your life? Are you sober-minded in thinking about the things of God above the things of this world? Are you self-controlled in keeping your emotions and keeping your actions in a way that would be consistent with the model that Jesus Christ set for us to follow? How about your prayers? How about your prayer life? Are you daily walking through life 
As the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's the picture of one whose identity is in Christ. Verse 80 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. What does that picture look like in your life? Are you tied in to the church community where your love for one another is just as valuable and held just as highly as your love for yourself and your love for your own personal family? This is a picture of what it looks like to be in corporate community together in the church. We celebrate 15 years as a church at Palmetto Shores today. There's a value to church community. Loving one another as we love Christ for the glory of God is what this picture looks like. Some of you have never taken the step of even joining the church. And I would encourage you to take that step of faith and change that so your identity in Christ can become the corporate identity of this church. And if not this church, find a church that you can get plugged into so that the gift that God gives to His children can be used by you in the church community to fulfill God's mission of the church in this world. On and on and on I can go. But I pray that you can be identified as a servant of Jesus in these last days, by the way you love God, the way you use your gift to serve Him, by the way you love the community of faith that He's put you in to serve. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, we not only see the identity of a servant of Jesus, but we also see, number two, the relationship of a servant of Jesus. In verse 1, it continues and says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there are three big ideas, and I'm just going to touch on them briefly here. The three big ideas in this opening sentence in this critical letter are faith, equal standing, and righteousness. The apostles had witnessed the work and life of Jesus Hands on. The apostles had seen Jesus die on the cross and physically rise from the grave and come back and visit with them and then be ascended into heaven. But this is so encouraging because Simon Peter says here that equal standing means that there is no difference in the experience that those original apostles and eyewitnesses had with Jesus. And the experience that you and I have with Jesus, no difference whatsoever. Faith is precious to all believers. All believers have equal access to Jesus. And faith and equal standing have nothing to do with us. It's all about the gift of God 
Faith is a gift that's granted by God. You have nothing to do with it. I have nothing to do with it. It's a gift from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes it perfectly clear that faith is that gift from God. Nothing you can do to earn it. It comes from God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but everybody has faith. Everybody has faith in something. Um, For example, on the way back and forth from the church the last month, on Bypass 17 down near my house, they're building these giant condominiums. I mean, they're like five stories high. I mean, they're like 40, 50 feet up in the air. (laughs) And, And I've watched as much as I possibly could, watch the men walk around on those roof trusses, putting the roof on those high-rise apartments. Now, those guys have faith. You drove over here this morning in some kind of vehicle, most likely. You trusted that vehicle to get you here. You have faith. You have faith in that vehicle. But your faith... The faith of those men who walk around on those roof trusses, uh, the, the faith is not in their faith that holds them up or that gets you here. It's the object of their faith. If, if, if those trusses were not solid that they were walking around on, if they were rotten, if they had a crack in them, those guys would fall to their death. If your car wouldn't start <laughs> or if it broke down on the way out here, uh, you wouldn't be here. It's not your faith, it's the object of your faith that got you here or that keeps those men from falling from those buildings to their death. So the faith that we have in Jesus is dependent on the object of our faith. And because Jesus Christ died on the cross and then arose from the grave and became victorious over death... We can put our faith in Him because He is the solid object of our faith. Faith is a gift from God. And faith is solid when we put our faith in Jesus because Jesus has overcome the greatest fear of man. Jesus has overcome death. There are many people who put their faith in the wrong thing. There are people who are non-believers, and they, they, they feel like that the moment they die, then that's it. That's the end of existence. Nothing else happens. Their faith is in their own logic. I could have faith that, you know, I could walk off of this platform and not use the steps. I could just walk off through the air. Guess what? That would be, that would be a big mistake. <laughs> that would be deadly for me. So it's not your faith that makes a difference. It's the object of your faith. And when you put the the, the faith that God gives you in Jesus and not in your own human logic, then like Peter, you can have peace. When the object of your faith is Jesus, he's not a crutch. He totally transforms everything about your life because He is the solid foundation. And He doesn't just give you a crutch to hobble around through life on. He gives you a new life in Him, a transformational life in Him. It's a gift based on the object of faith, Jesus and Jesus alone. 
So Jesus is actually that solid foundation that Simon Peter had put his faith in that he could celebrate. And I trust and pray that he's the solid foundation that you put your faith and trust in today as well. This faith is a personal, solid relationship that opens up the door for you to know the grantor of faith, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So how can you be sure that you know Jesus? How can you be sure that you put your faith in him? How can you be sure that you are standing on a solid foundation and not the logic of this world? Three things. Number one, you have to admit that you failed. That you're a sinner and that your sin separates you from God. I want to be real clear here. Because some may be here who know about Jesus intellectually. But you've never taken that step of admitting that you need him to transform your life, to change your life. So admit that you need him. Secondly, believe that Jesus came to this earth and died for your sin. And only the blood of Jesus that he shed on that cross can pay for the penalty of your sin. You believe that with all your heart to the point to where Number three, you commit the rest of your life after repenting of your sin and turning away from your sin. You commit the rest of your life to making all of life about Jesus. That's what Simon Peter did. That's what it meant to be a slave of Jesus in his mind. That's what it meant for him to be totally sold out and totally committed to Jesus. And finally, that leads to the third part of this salutation that's underscored. And that is, number three, the status of a servant of Jesus. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We've already said that all believers have equal access to the grace and to the peace of God. And just like faith in Ephesians chapter 2 Grace is a gift of God. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace means that You have been given by God better than you deserve. You deserve to be separated. I deserve to be separated from God because of sin. But because of His grace, He's given us better than we deserve. It's His unmerited favor. That means that there's nothing we can do to work our way to God. There's nothing we can do to earn our way to God. Herschel Hobbes said that you can work... You can't work your way to heaven, but if you're going to heaven, you'll be working all the way. And that's exactly true. God's grace is amazing. And when you know God's grace, you can know God's peace. John Newton was the author, is the author of the famous song that we know, Amazing Grace. 
I don't know how much you know about his story, but he experienced God's grace in a powerful way. He was a slave trader. He trafficked Africans from Africa to the West Indies. As a child, his mother had taught him about Jesus. His mother had taught him about what it meant to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. But he rebelled against that. He went his own way. But when he was 25 years old, he, he personally met Jesus. He was in a storm, captain in a ship in a storm. And in the middle of the storm, he realized his need for Jesus. And he surrendered his life to Jesus. He eventually was transformed from being a slave trader to becoming a slave for Jesus. I trust that that same kind of thing will happen to all of us here in our lifetime. Like my friends Ed and Charlie, John Newton experienced God's amazing grace. And from that moment on, his life was really never the same. At age 60, he founded the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. And 22 years later, at the age of 82, nine months before he died, slavery was abolished in Great Britain, much because of the work of John Newton. He died in peace just because all believers have equal access with God's grace through Jesus, and God's grace is what gives God's peace. Do you have that peace in your heart today? Have you come to that place in your life where you realize that God's not hiding from you, He's coming after you? God wants you to come to know Him by trusting Him, by giving your life to Him. And then by letting him take your life and use the gift that he's giving you as a believer to serve his body and to serve this world. Like Simon Peter and my friend Ed and Charlie, like John Newton, like me and every other believer, knowing Jesus personally, by grace through faith, is the key to facing the future and being set free from the slavery of the things of this world, set free to be a slave to Jesus. And that's my prayer for you today. So how do we wrap this up? This little salutation from the second letter that we know as Second Peter. Well, in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Simon Peter had heard Jesus say this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What a prayer from Jesus. In these last days, this tells me three things. That when Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Number one, remember that Jesus is praying for you. 
He loves you. And He's praying for you. And with that assurance and confidence, number two, go and strengthen other believers. After you have been strengthened, then go and strengthen other believers. And number three, step over the line and become a slave to Jesus. Make all of life submissive to His will for you. And like Simon Peter, you'll see that He can do great things through your life. Father, I thank You today for a life and a witness and a testimony like the witness of Simon Peter. God, I thank You for His faithfulness that even though He failed You miserably, after failing You, He became a slave to You, to the Lord Jesus. God, that's what I want to be. I want to become a slave to Jesus. And I pray that every person under the sound of my voice would make that same kind of commitment. God, continue to speak to our hearts now as we spend a few minutes just reflecting on what your Holy Spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name.